0: All right, hey everybody, we're live. This is the second episode of the social brain. Uh, We're going to be talking about the rise of social neuroscience. So a little bit of the history of neuroscience and social neuroscience in particular, and then we're going to get into some of the cool brain stuff about how all that works. Um, But I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone, I run the channel sense of mind. Uh, It's all about neuroscience and psychology. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of my deal. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm Taylor Guthrie, I'm a social neuroscientist, uh, and I run
1: the, the channel The Cellular Republic. Uh, I have uh, lectures on the brain, uh, and some kind of pop science videos, and then kind of this this awesome thing that, that Andrew and I are doing. So, uh, yeah, today we're really going to get into uh, where we kind of left off with the first episode. We really, I think, set the stage for why social neuroscience is important and I think one of the, the really cool things that we're starting to see is that a lot of cognitive neuroscientists kind of viewed social neuroscience as this kind of like fringe thing that wasn't really important. Like it's not memory, it's not attention, whatever. Uh, and I think that there's this kind of reckoning coming where people are starting to notice that like social neuroscience is actually kind of at the center of a lot of this stuff, that like we evolved as social beings and a lot of our brain mechanisms evolved around that. So. Uh, I think one of the things we really want to do today is to to really contextualize a lot of this stuff and to really show how new a lot of this science really is. So uh, we're going to jump back a couple hundred years to start uh, and really look at kind of the beginnings of uh, of neuroscience. And uh, yeah, Andrew and I are kind of going to jump back and forth, talk about some some funny anecdotes from neuroscience. Uh, and I think a good one to start with, maybe I'll start with uh Early 1700s. So there's uh, there's a, a thing in the brain called the circle of Willis. It's this, uh, this circle of vessels that spreads blood throughout the brain. And it was named after a guy named Thomas Willis. And he was actually a, uh, a scientist that at that time, they were just starting to use cadavers to, to really open up brains and to, to look at brains for the first time. It was actually considered kind of taboo to do that because of religious region, reasons and things like that. Uh, but they had made agreements that they were able to use criminals that had just been hung to, to like cut open and look at the brain and to figure out how it worked. And there was a woman who she was she had a stillborn baby and was actually uh, she was committed for uh, infanticide. They they put her on trial for for killing her baby uh, and they ended up hanging this woman. And they gave the body to Thomas Willis and he went to go do the dissection and actually noticed that her eyelids were flickering and was like, oh my God, this woman is still alive. And he ended up bringing her completely back to health. And the government wanted to try her again and hang her again. And Thomas Willis actually like came to her defense and said, you know, it's, a, it's the will of God that she survived. Uh, and she ended up winning and, and was let, they let her live. And because of that, Thomas Willis actually got a lot of fame. And he ended up going on to, I think, name like uh, dozens of the anatomical structures in the brain. And then later on, the the circle of Willis was named after him. So uh, kind of a cool start to the neuroscientific journey. But
0: yeah, definitely. And I guess we should mention, like in that period, there wasn't really a field of neuroscience. It was just kind of rolled up with biology and anatomy and people didn't really know what the nervous system was or what it was doing. Um, There was some like in the in that close to that period, there was people figuring out that uh, it was nerves that controlled muscles, so started to get some idea that that's what was going on and there were definitely people before that that had suspected that the brain was the the seat of mental life and our behavior um but it really hadn't been uh, fleshed out so to speak um <laughs> and uh yeah so i don't know we can kind of zoom forward a little bit if you want to to the, yeah, the yeah. 1800s maybe
1: uh, yeah, I think uh, Galvani was was really big. Uh, I mean, that's where kind of the galvanic skin response uh, originates from. So this idea that we can measure nerve impulses on the skin. Uh, and so there's some type of, this is where we really started to understand that there was electrical activity that was really driving a lot of this communication that was happening. Um, and I think a lot throughout this time, they thought that like, the brain and the nervous system was just kind of this blob, this one thing. There wasn't individual cells; it was just this huge blob that was connected to everything. Um, like Hemholtz was around this time, uh, and he was he was really big in understanding kind of the speed of electrical transmission.
0: Yeah, yeah, discovered the the speed of a neural impulse. Um i'm not sure how he did that i can't remember what the experiment was but that is definitely true Uh, he figured that out and i think around the same time while there were some of these experimentalists figuring out like we said that um there was these electrical signals in nerves that was luigi galvani and then this speed of a neural impulse Hermann von helmholtz a lot of what was going on was also um kind of understanding the the medical side so like neurology seeing the damage to the brain, and then seeing what effect that had on behavior. And to be clear, like people had been getting, of course, brain injuries throughout history, and then their behavior changing. Um, but this was sort of uh, the Enlightenment period, people starting to to take a rational lens and trying to understand where their specific deficits, what was really going on? Um, what was the, the deficit that was caused by a certain brain lesion? And, and yeah. yeah, go. I was just gonna
1: say Phineas Gage. Uh, yeah, is is the big one there, and I think that really sets the stage for us in terms of social neuroscience. So, uh, for those of you that don't know who Phineas Gage is, he was a railroad railroad worker, uh, and so he was actually tamping an iron down, uh, and something sparked, and this this rod went right through his frontal lobe, and he ended up surviving from it. Uh, and the the crazy thing about it was that uh, everything was pretty much intact in in terms of like motor control, in terms of kind of attention and his ability to to actually live a normal life. But his personality was completely changed.
0: Yes, yeah. and his his doctor was um Harlow. I can't remember his last name, but uh, he there's this famous quote about what happened to. Uh, Phineas Gage after that accident and the the bar, I I think you said this already, but it went right through his, his orbital frontal cortex, I think. So his, so right, like in this area, I'm sorry, I can't get the brain right, but somewhere in, in here, it was kind of a, a big injury though. We can, or maybe we can find the picture of the skull, but regardless, there's this quote from his doctor that says that, um, uh, his um, Gage, Phineas Gage's employers, and then this is the quote: "Who regarded him as the most efficient and capable foreman considered the change in his mind so marked that they could not give him his place again. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity which he was not which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when." when it conflicts with his desires, a child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. (laughs) His mind was radically changed so decidedly, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was, quote, no longer Gage.
1: And that's, that really, like I said, it sets the stage for social neuroscience because this was the first time that we actually noticed that brain deficits caused very social consequences right? This person's personality changed. He wasn't able to inhibit these impulses that he was having. Uh, and a lot of, when you really think about uh, impulse control, a lot of impulse control is because of the social norms that we have in place, right? We live in a society where we have to restrict certain behaviors that, that seem like, to an animal, they just do, right? Um, and that's kind of what ended up happening to Gage is that he wasn't able to regulate any of this stuff anymore. Whatever came to his mind, he just did. Um, and so that yeah. really showed that damage to something could cause these really social effects.
0: And to that point that that was so such an alien concept that it could it could cause these, um, these uh, social deficits. I can, I don't, I'd have to look for the quote, but I know his doctor said something like, well, this brain region must not do anything because it doesn't seem like really anything has has happened to him, which is hard to reconcile with that other quote that I just read. But Mm -hmm. um, it it was like kind of an alien idea that all these these social deficits could be instantiated by a, a specific brain process. I mean, yeah, it's just, I guess, a different time, a different mindset around it.
1: I mean, the frontal lobe is something, especially in future episodes, we're really going to zoom in on because that's where a lot of the social stuff is happening. Um, I mean, there's some researchers that go as far as saying that like the medial portion of the frontal lobe is like the social brain. Um, I think that it's a a lot more nuanced than that. But uh, most of the social stuff we see is within kind of these frontal lobe regions and then what they call kind of the default mode network, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but that I think also paved the way, uh, to some other people that started to notice kind of localized function. Um, so yeah, Wernicke, I think, uh, was mm-hmm. one of them. So that was the patient.
0: Or he was the doctor, I think. The, yeah. Uh, I mean, neurologist. Yeah. Oh, oh, actually, I think you're thinking of, uh, Broca, Broca's patient. So, um, Paul Broca was another, uh, a neurologist in the 1800s and, uh, just, he discovered, uh, or he had this patient who could only say um, one syllable, basically. It was tan. And uh, Broca discovered that he had a lesion in this area that's now called Broca's area, which is also in the frontal lobe. Um, And it has to do with, uh, it's critical for speech production. Um, So that's why this patient couldn't say really anything other than and tan, even though, uh, like I think later it was shown he could understand language, and uh, he could read it and everything, but it just couldn't couldn't produce that part of the brain that allowed him to produce language was kind of um, obliterated, I guess you could say. <laughs>
1: Uh, And so I think where this is all leading was we were starting to see that there was kind of this localized function that you could destroy certain parts of the brain and very specific deficits would happen, right? So we knew that like certain portions of the brain were responsible for certain types of behavior. uh, But what really started to kick off neuroscience, I think, was the work of Golgi and Romanique Hall. Um, So Golgi had developed this new staining technique that Uh, allowed for viewing individual neurons. And like I said earlier, there was this, this thought that the brain and the nervous system were actually just this kind of web that was all just one thing. It wasn't these individual cells, which was really kind of interesting because like the cellular doctrine in biology had actually been adopted much earlier. Like we knew that like skin cells were individual cells and muscle cells were individual cells, but there was still this kind of prevailing belief that the only way for electrical transmission to be as fast as it was, like Hemholtz had found and everything was if everything had been just kind of connected in this one long thing. Um, and uh, Romanica Hall actually sat down with these Golgi stains and drew out the first neurons. And I mean, if you have the chance, look up these pictures, they're like fascinating. I want to let like, just hang them on my wall, but uh, that really started to kick off this idea that we need to start looking at how individual cells create this, amazing system that allows for really fast transmission for coordination amongst all of these different uh, parts of our body, these different parts of our brain. Um, and that, I think, really kicked off kind of the neuroscience discipline in general. But that was very focused on kind of the biology and the cellular life.
0: Yeah. And and Ramoni e. Cajal is a, is a lot of people consider him like the the father of modern neuroscience, you could say, because mm-hmm. he he was so focused on the cells and understanding that they, they were individual cells. Um, and to your point that these these pictures are so beautiful, the uh, neuroscientist Christoph Koch, who studies um, consciousness and yeah. um, things like that, he has a tattoo of uh, one <laughs> of the, the Cajal drawings on his shoulder, I'm pretty sure. That's so, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I mean, this this
1: really created this huge burgeoning. where now all of these, uh, a lot of the times, by biologists, but uh, even like psychologists started to kind of get into the the neuron world. Uh, like Eric Kandel is a big one. Uh, he's got a really great book called "In Search of Memory," where he kind of documents the the history of kind of the the cellular neuroscience world. He ended up getting the Nobel Prize for. Um, for unveiling like LTP mechanisms, which is long term potentiation, how we remember things, how neurons kind of fire together or wire together, kind of a thing. Um, and that if, I want to really like kind of put this into context because what we really want to highlight is that neuroscience in general is an extremely new discipline. I mean, this is within the last 150 years uh, that yeah. most of this like cellular work in the neuron space has actually happened. Um, and a hundred years ago, there was, there was this crazy debate that was happening, it was called the spark and soup debate. There's an entire book written about it. Uh, but there was, we knew that there was individual cells that made up the nervous system, but there was still a lot of controversy because we didn't have the right measuring tools to really zoom in and look at how these things were working, that we didn't know whether it was purely electrical transmission or whether there was some type of chemical component. Um, and there was actually a conference where these lead researchers in that kind of debate ended up coming to blows and like punching each other in the <laughs> face over whether or not it was electrical or chemical transmission. Uh, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> funny too, because the, the guy that ended up, uh, that was kind of the aggressor, uh, he was on the, the spark side. And so, I mean, he ended up losing because there's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there are such things as neurotransmitters. There's like the synaptic cleft where this kind of chemical soup is. That's the, the soup side. But it was funny because I think it was like five or 10 years later, uh, the guy that was so just like fervent about it being just electrical transmission ended up publishing like one of the landmark papers that really showed that it was uh, a chemical. And so there's this really wow. just kind of interesting history
0: to to all of this. Yeah, that, that is really cool. And uh, just to that point that it's so new, I, I could be wrong on this, but I believe the first institute to specifically study neuroscience was the Psychoneurological Institute, St. Petersburg State Medical Academy, um, which was, uh, I don't know if the yeah, I believe that was established in like, 1907. So something Mm -hmm. like that. So the the first it's about 100 years old or a little over that. Um, So that's that's pretty amazing.
1: And so what, what started to happen is there was this this big kind of burgeoning in the, the psychological field uh that turned into what's known as cognitive psychology, where there was uh there was a lot of uh, so the behaviorists were really big uh, in kind of the 50s and the 60s of saying that, like, we don't really need to understand what's going on in the brain. All we really need to do is to study behavior to understand individuals. Um, individuals are blank slates. You give me a child, I can turn him into whatever kind of person you want me to turn him into. That was kind of the idea. Uh, but then there was kind of this, this burgeoning of, like, no, we should really try to understand what's going on in the brain. But we didn't really have the tools to, to study humans yet. Um, and so a lot of the early work in cognitive psych is actually with reaction time. We started to to notice that it took time to think about things, to react to things, to make decisions about things, to pay attention to things. And so there was this entire field that, that really started to study the brain in this kind of like secondary way of uh, like understanding that there was this information uh, processing pathway that took time for things to go from one section to the other. Uh, and it was fascinating that they learned as much as they did. There's a, a great researcher named Mike Posner. He's actually uh an Emirate professor at uh, university of Oregon where I'm at. Uh, and he, I mean, there's a picture of him getting a medal from Obama. Uh, he was huge in this. Uh, he has these uh, attention uh, paradigms that he was really big in, but he ended up becoming uh he, with uh, another researcher, they were really big in kind of the first uh, neuroimaging studies. And so what I, what I'm trying to get at is that the first neuroimaging. So actually looking at a human brain was the 1990s. Like that was 30 years ago. It's like, crazy. It is a super, super new field. Um, and it started with uh, posit- positron emission tomography, what's called a PET scan. Uh, and these, there's this huge lag. So when you're actually studying the human brain with PET, uh, you're looking at activity from like 10 to 15 seconds ago. So there wasn't really like a great way to conceptualize what was going on, Uh, but they figured out how to do what's called contrasting, Um, which is basically you have someone engage in some type of a task. Uh, Let's say they're doing an attention task and then you have them do nothing for a period of time. And what you're able to do is you're able to kind of contrast those two brain states with each other so what's different when they're attending to something versus when they're doing nothing and if you kind of subtract the activity from the two then what you're left with is the brain regions that were active during attention and this really became kind of the basis for cognitive neuroscience the kind of birth of cognitive neuroscience um, and this was right around two when MRI came on. So I have this uh, the patent for the first MRI machine behind me, uh, and that was uh, that was the the nineteen nineties uh, and the first studies. Something to really keep in mind, especially if you're getting into kind of neuroscience uh, literature and research, is that the the early studies were super small and super expensive. Um, most of them had like ten to fifteen subjects at most. Uh, started to get up to 30 in some of them, uh, but it was, it was a very kind of just like new, like, oh my gosh, we have this, this tool now and we can actually look at people's brains. Um, and so when you look at the term cognitive neuroscience, it was trying to kind of combine these, what are called different levels of analysis. And I think that's something that I really wanna highlight through the rest of this episode is that what a lot of these kind of new fields end up being is trying to connect these different ways of doing science, right? So you have this one level of analysis that is biological, right? You have neuroscience, where you're studying specific neurons, specific cells, uh, and you have this other field of science, which is cognitive psychology, where you're looking at reaction time, you're looking at different uh, attention and memory and these different things. And so you can kind of combine the two and see how is the biology informing these psychological mechanisms that we've been looking at for the last 20 years um and can we just like stick someone in this noisy tube and and get something out of it
0: yeah and and uh i oh, i was just going to mention i guess the uh with with cognitive psychology it it kind of it seems like it it sort of sprung out of this other slightly older field called psychophysics which mm-hmm. was kind of um similar like trying to understand how how physical stimuli uh, relate to the the, like contents of the mind Um, but regardless uh, to your point like when once fMRI got off the ground and people started actually looking at the brain um, we haven't gotten to functional fMRI yet. I mean Mm -hmm. functional MRI have we Yeah,
1: yeah yeah no we haven't really talked about how it works or what it is yeah uh, because, yeah, it took a while for us to start noticing that that we could use, because MRI was starting to be used for structural scans, uh, and a lot of it was was medical, so it was like we can take a picture and see what someone's brain looks like, um, but we hadn't really figured out yet how to see what the brain is doing.
0: Yeah, and that, that structural thing in itself was, was very useful anyway, just to start to see differences between individual brains and uh, yeah. to look at, you know, if somebody did have some kind of neurological deficit, you could start to see um, what regions look different in that brain or maybe where it was damaged. Um, but it didn't allow us to actually look at the, the, the processes occurring in the brain over time.
1: Yeah. Um. And so that's, I think where uh, so functional neuroimaging. So there's uh, the really cool thing I think about uh, neuroscience in general is it brings a lot of disciplines together um, because when you bring MRI into the mix, now you have a bunch of physicists on your team. Um, and these physicists were trying to understand, like, okay, how is it that this, like, magnetic field is allowing us to image the brain the way that we are? Uh, and it's really cool science. I mean, the, the magnetic field gets your hydrogen protons to line up in a certain way. And then there's this radio pulse that, like, knocks them all over. Uh, and then there's this antenna that measures how these protons kind of get back to where they're supposed to be. And the length of time that it takes for these protons to get back to where they're supposed to be is different in different tissues. And so that's how we can start saying like, okay, this is gray matter, this is white matter. Uh, and we can separate those out. Uh, but there was these physicists that also figured out that we could start tracking oxygen um, and we could look at blood flow in the brain through kind of a taking pictures every like two seconds. So when you're doing MRI, you're usually you have what's called a, a TR. It's your repetition time. So you're usually taking a picture every two to three seconds, um, and you're seeing how the oxygenation in the brain has changed over that two to three seconds, and where the blood is flowing because blood is carrying oxygen through the brain. Um, and there is kind of kind of a leap when you're looking at MRI. You're not actually looking at electrical activity. You're not looking at actual neurons firing. You can't tell the difference between excitation and inhibition. Uh, What you're looking at is cells being replenished, right? If a cell fires, it's going to use a bunch of energy and it needs to have a bunch of resources brought to it because of that. And there's this amazing mechanism. The only reason we can do fMRI is because that process is localized that it happens only when cells actually use things. The brain isn't just getting pumped full of blood in this kind of random chaotic way. It's if this region uses resources, it gets resources. And so we can tell like, okay, that region was just active because it just used a bunch of resources and got a bunch of blood.
0: And that's a that's like a principle that is uh, pretty, pretty solid throughout the rest of like physiology. I mean, if you're using a muscle, it's going to need more blood than a muscle that's just sitting still, or an organ that's working is going to utilize more blood because that's where they are getting all their their resources from, like you said. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are probably familiar or have at least seen like fMRI images where uh, it looks like there's, you know, like orange and red coloring uh, to make it look like certain regions are active and others aren't or less active Um, and as Taylor mentioned that's kind of a there's this inference process you have to think about like uh, a neuron could be or neurons could be overall excited or they could be inhibited um, but they're receiving blood nonetheless and so you're saying like this region is important for this process because we can see the blood flow going to it and I think a lot of people just kind of assume that that means that all the neurons in that little <laughs> red you know portion of the image are super active at that moment and um, one of the weird discoveries of fairly recent times is uh, when you when you actually stick an electrode into the brain into the cortex and try to directly measure electrical activity uh, what you find is that it's really just a few neurons that are active at any moment in that region even though it looks like if you were to just go off a blood flow it looks like it's it's really active so we're still learning a lot about what is actually going on but it's like there's no doubt that fmri is telling us something really important about what the brain is actually doing and how it carries out its its processes And the the most important thing is that it's
1: replicable. So that's what's really interesting about a lot of this stuff, especially early on. We were like, how are we finding anything like this? Like, this is is amazing. We're just tracking blood flow. We're not actually looking at activity. Yet somehow we're seeing these results come up over and over and over again. Uh, When someone's engaging in memory tasks, we see the hippocampus light up every single time. Right? There's this, this really reliable signal that we're getting out of like, okay, every time they're trying to remember something, this region of their brain is coming online. Um, and that's something that has really kind of paved the way for it becoming this, this huge field that it has. Uh, and you're kind of getting at something too, like these blobs that we see when we look at these early fMRI studies. So there's a lot of kind of analysis techniques that are uh, getting a lot more refined now. But a lot of the the blob stuff is actually looking at uh, something very similar to what I mentioned earlier with the, the PET scans, where we're having them do a task, say a memory task. So I want you to try to remember these things and then we have them sit there for a period of like four or five seconds where they do nothing. And then we have them remember something and then they do nothing. And what we end up doing is this contrast where we say what's different in the brain when they're remembering something versus when they're not. Um, And a lot of those blobs are actually averages. It's like we're averaging the activity over an entire swath of space. And then we're saying like this region on average was really active for this task. So the hippocampus on average was really active during memory. Um, And what we'll kind of get into, especially in future episodes, is the really cool directions that we're going now, where instead of just saying what regions were active, we're now starting to be able to zoom into those regions and say, how were they active? what were the patterns of activity in these brains? And so we can start saying like, okay, it's great that the hippocampus is on when we're engaging in memory, but can we look at the hippocampus and say, are they remembering a house right now? Or are Mm. they remembering a dog right now by looking at different patterns of activity uh, using these really cool modeling techniques and things like that. So that's kind of a preview of, of what's to come. What's kind of some of the future stuff, but I think what we can do now that we've kind of set the stage and shown how new a lot of this stuff is, uh, kind of pivot to kind of the social side of this and show how kind of social neuroscience itself kind of arose out of this. Because when you look at the term cognitive neuroscience, most of the stuff that was studied came out of the cognitive psychology field. So cognitive psychologists were studying memory. They were studying attention. They were studying decision making and all of these, these things that were very discreet externalized functions that are specific to an individual, right? They have nothing really to do with social stuff. Um, I remember this, so this this cognitive neuroscience class that I have on my YouTube channel, um, I had two entire lectures on social neuroscience and a, a faculty member ended up teaching the class after me and asked for my notes to kind of help uh, put everything together. And he was like, wow, I didn't realize how much there was in social neuroscience. This was like a memory (laughs) researcher. And he's like, I wasn't even going to include anything about social (laughs) neuroscience when I taught this class. And so there there is kind of this, uh, this, I I don't want to say belief, but uh, there's a lot of people in the cognitive neuroscience world that don't really understand how big the social neuroscience field is getting and kind of the important stuff that we're getting at. Uh, And so I think maybe we can look at some of the early stuff that kicked the field off. Uh, and then kind of work up from there and show what are the what are the themes like what kind of things are we actually looking at, um, and so uh, kind of on the same track as before as what we were talking about. A lot of the early stuff um, wasn't as early as we were talking. We're not talking like seventeen hundreds, uh, but most of the early stuff that started to show that the brain was interested in social stuff was actually the early nineties, and most of it was actually in uh, in animal models because. We hadn't really started to use MRI yet. Uh, the people that were using MRI were mainly using it for, for like cognitive neuroscience type stuff. Uh, but there were some, some researchers that were doing like monkey studies that noticed that some of the cells they were recording from in the amygdala were actually lighting up for social type stimuli. And they're like, whoa, like the brain cares about social stuff. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> uh, and that... Uh, kind of around that that same time too is where really started to to Aussie that uh, that so Dunbar uh, I don't know if, if you've heard the name Dunbar before yes like, yes he was an so,
0: anthropologist right
1: He was an anthropologist uh, and <laughs> he he actually had this this really interesting idea though because there was this thought that we as humans had really big brains because of abstract thought that that's why we had developed big brains. Um, And he kind of challenged that idea with a paper, I think it came out in like 92, uh, that said, the reason we have big brains is probably not because of this abstract thought, but because our groups were getting bigger and we had to keep track of more and more complex social information. I mean, when you really think about I mean, your life in the 2022 tribe that you're a part of, right? Mm-hmm. There's a ton of stuff that you have to keep track of, the relationships that you're in, like whether or not people are happy or unhappy with you, like the the responsibilities that you have in the, the cultural context that you're a part of, um, all of the social norms, the rules that, that you have to follow in terms of like inhibiting your behavior in certain circumstances, not in others. Um, all of this required... Uh, <laughs> An expansion of the frontal lobe, like we talked about earlier, and that's why a lot of people think the frontal lobe is very social. Um, but that was a, a really interesting kind of take on brain size, was that it, it could be really connected to our group size.
0: Yeah, and I believe didn't he he related it to like the size of the brain. He also related it to um, uh, other non-human primates and looked at the size of their social groups. Or maybe it wasn't him, but future work. Um, but that like, I guess we should mention his Dunbar's number was uh, 150. And it was this idea that like in, in our ancestral environment as, as hunter gatherers, uh, 150 would have been kind of like the maximum size of the tribe that we could, where we could effectively keep track of everybody in that tribe's intentions, their behaviors, their the the kinds of things Taylor was just talking about. Um, because above that number, it's just it gets to be too much. like you you can't keep track of every single person. so it seems like groups tend to split uh, when they get above one hundred and fifty. but that he related that back to the size of our frontal lobes mm-hmm.
1: And I really interesting. so there's a there's an author, Yuval Harari, who wrote the book Homo sapiens. Uh, he has this really interesting take on a lot of this too, where, Uh, one of the coolest things about being human is that we can organize in extremely large numbers, but in a really flexible way. So you have other animals or like insects, right? So uh, bees, ants, they're able to organize in these extremely large numbers, but it's very rigid. Uh, They have to have the same type of colony, the same type of behaviors, the same type of roles. Um, But humans are able to adapt in these really flexible ways, and a lot of it is because of our ability to keep track of what Yuval Harari calls fiction, uh, but uh, these these rules, these cultural rules, uh, he kind of refers back to a lot of the religious practices that started a lot of the social norms, uh, believing that there was like this higher order that was controlling all of these rules and everything, Um, but it kind of ties into these ideas that what the brain is actually doing is it's keeping track of This this really social information. And so around that same time, around the the early 1990s, uh, a a pioneer in the field that really kind of coined the term social neuroscience uh, was Cassiopo and Bernstein. And so they were uh, he was not a neuroscientist, actually, uh, but he he noticed that there were these levels of analysis, like I mentioned earlier, that could inform one another that we were missing something by not connecting some of these biological components to social activity. Um, And so a lot of the work that was done in the early 1990s was actually like psychophysiological. So we weren't actually looking at the brain yet, but we were taking like physiological measures of people. We were looking at immune system function. We were looking at heart rate. We were looking at, uh, in animal studies, like what happened to rats and what happened to monkeys when we isolated them from, from other members of their species right um and a lot of that work showed that that loneliness is damaging like super damaging that you have these these crazy effects to your immune system you become immunocompromised when you're isolated when you're uh, put out to pasture so to say uh you end up with heart problems you end up with cognitive deficits uh, there's a laundry list i mean it's something i think i mentioned in the last episode that a lot of these researchers because of this work kind of talk about our social needs as mammals as being just as important as our social physiological needs for like hunger and thirst because of these really bad things that happen if we don't have it um and yeah. he really coined the term social neuroscience
0: even though he wasn't really doing neuroscience per se yeah oh, i'm sorry i was just gonna jump yeah. just jump in there and say like just to to add on to that that um loneliness and social isolation i, I think uh, it has a it's it's a greater risk of all cause mortality than obesity. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's interesting, it's, it's really, you know, and who knows the exact causation of that. But, um, but yeah, there's all those, these negative health effects. And even, you know, uh, talking about, if, if we're talking about kind of the the cognitive side and the, the brain side, that there's this finding of lower activity or altered activity in the hippocampus in socially isolated people. And so Mm -hmm. this kind of showing this, this globally important function of social interaction throughout the brain that, you know, you think of the hippocampus as being just this, this very like sterile memory making thing, but it's, it's really tied into our social lives too. But anyway, you were Talking about John field. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, he, he was uh, he was a great speaker. Um, he he really had this like this vision that he was spreading, and I think really got a lot of people excited about uh, trying to answer some of these questions. Um, and I think that's where kind of late nineteen nineties, early two thousands is where a lot of this stuff really started to kick off. Uh, so some of the work that that I do um, is involves in the the self and how the self is represented in the brain. Um, A lot of people are like, what what does the self have to do with social neuroscience? But uh, the self has everything to do with social neuroscience because we're embedded in a social context. And so we understand ourselves in relation to other people. Um, But there was this interesting early work with uh, kind of the self in general. Uh, It was uh, Klein in 96, I think, that uh, started to notice that we are able to remember things a lot better if they're self-relevant in some way. Um, and this is, this is a, a really good word of advice to any of the students out there, uh, is that if you really wanna do well in a class, make it important to you. Uh, because when things are important to you, when they have meaning to you, when you can see some relevance to your own life and some relevance to your, your identity, to your self-concept, those types of things are really easy to remember. And so there was this this kind of idea that uh there may be this separate mechanism for memory about other things and memory about things that are self-relevant and self about the self-concept and it really kind of kicked off this work of like is there something special about the self is there dedicated circuitry in the brain to understanding the self um and and that really kind of uh there's this really interesting paper that looks at the the geographical contributions of social neuroscience. Uh, and he made this this interesting uh, point that most of the American researchers that got into social neuroscientists or got into social neuroscience were very focused on the self. Whereas <laughs> a lot of the European people that got into social neuroscience were actually interested in like others and the theory of mind and empathy and all of these things but most of the research in America was like kind of centered around the self concept. I don't know what it says about us as Americans, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: yeah, that's really interesting. I never heard that before. Well, maybe, maybe you should talk more about what, what is, what, how do we understand the self from a neuroscience perspective?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Um, there was some really interesting work, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, Bill Kelly and, uh, Todd Heatherton, uh, that started to kind of uncover that there is this, this portion of the medial prefrontal cortex. So kind of midline of the frontal lobe right behind our nose right here. Uh, that is extremely reliably active when we're doing anything that's self-relevant. Yep. Right there. (laughs) So that, that region of the brain, uh, I mean, this is one of the most robust signals in kind of MRI research. Uh, You can put one person in a scanner. You don't need 30 people, 50 people. uh, And you'll find this effect almost every single time. You put them in there, you have them think about their self in some self-relevant way. Like think about your personality traits. Think about things that you own. Think about things that are important to you. Uh, And this region of the frontal lobe lights up for this kind of stuff. And so... We started to recognize that there was this kind of self land uh there's a lot of nuance now we're trying to understand I, there's a lot of researchers that don't really think that it's like the self area but that it's it's dedicated to processing information about the self um i think that it also does a lot of other stuff um we have uh, andrew and i had a, a really great conversation about goals uh you can check that video out uh i think that a lot of our goal processing happens in these same regions and that our self concept really is kind of a goal. We want to be a good person. We want to have certain personality traits. Uh, But some really cool early work was actually done by uh, Jason Mitchell, uh, big name in the field, super prolific. Uh, He's a researcher at Harvard. And he started to look at this self-other distinction, right? What What parts of the brain are interested in the self and what parts of the brain are interested in other people? Uh, and so a lot of these early studies were actually using like fake So They'd create these like fake personas that uh, while you're in the scanner, you're thinking about this this person that you've been told about that has like a certain political affiliation that has certain characteristics that were kind of created by the researchers. Uh, but what they found is that when you were thinking about yourself, this region of the, the medial prefrontal cortex would light up. But when you were thinking about others, this other region that was kind of dorsal to that, so up higher up would light up. And so they were like, wow, there's kind of this this separation uh, in the frontal lobe when we're thinking about others and when we're thinking about the self. But the really cool kind of contribution that Jason Mitchell started to to kind of develop that has kind of, there's been some nuance to it as it's uh, evolved. But he started to notice that when you manipulate who the other person is, that you start to see these really interesting changes. So when the person is dissimilar from you is not like you at all then it's up in this kind of dorsal region it's not near kind of the self region at all but when you start to make those other people similar to you if you have kind of people that you know though that activity actually drops down into kind of the self land Uh, there's uh there's some interesting new work by by megan myers that's uh that's really kind of talking about how uh and jason mitchell kind of Posed this idea early on, but we're kind of seeing that this could be true, is that uh, we may be using ourself to understand people that are like us. Uh, some of the, the later work showed that it wasn't necessarily similarity that was driving this, but more familiarity. It was people that we knew, people that were close to us, that started mm-hmm. to show up in the self area of the brain. And it's this idea that if you really think about what the brain is doing in terms of trying to understand the self and trying to understand other people, uh, it's probably predictive in nature, right? We're trying to predict what we're going to do next. We're trying to predict what this other person is going to do next in order to kind of align our behavior in some way. And so the idea was that this self region uh, may be used to understand people that are like us. If we know who that person is, if we know that they're like us, then they're probably going to act like us. But if we see someone that's from another culture, someone from an out group, right? then they're in this other region of the brain that's probably processing stereotypical information, heuristics and schemas about that's what people like that do. And so it's this kind of heuristic that we're using to understand someone that's not like us. We're not using ourselves to understand them. We're using this kind of schema that we've developed about people like that, people in the out group.
0: Wow. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. That, um, I mean, part of this has to do with the, the fact that the, I mean, what you were just talking about, like the self is sort of a, a flexible uh, construct that we can, we can extend to other people to some extent. Is that, would you say that's mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like that also occurs at the level of like our bot, our concept of our body, like our body map, um, which is an interesting aspect of, of when we talk about self, I think there's like this disconnect between are, are we talking about the psychological <laughs> self, the, the you that is like the thinker, the one talking in your head and making you do stuff? Or is it this, this whole organism, this body? Um, and I think we're kind of just now talking about more the the psychological self that is really related to this medial prefrontal area. Um, But then there's also this, this body self. I don't know if you want to call it that, but, um, but there's these various like illusions or these, these experiments that can show that we can be flexible with even our body um, self image as well. Uh, so there's like this, this rubber hand illusion where basically you, you put your hand under a table and then there's like a blanket over your arm. And then on top of the table is like this rubber hand. So it looks like that's kind of your hand, but it's obviously not because you know, it's rubber and you can see it and it, it looks fake and everything. But, um, what they'll do is simultaneously. Uh, stroke your hand as well as the rubber hand and you're watching the rubber hand being stroked while you're feeling your hand being stroked under the table and gradually for a lot of people they start to f- identify with that rubber hand yeah. as if it's their own so when someone like comes down to smash it with a hammer <laughs> they like instinctively freak out because it's, <laughs> it's so um it feels like it's their hand it, lo- it seems it's this strange process of where we can kind of expand self outward, but that's that's a little bit different than the the like the psychological self that um, Taylor is referring to.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it kind of gets to this idea that we can adopt things into our our self concept, maybe. Um, and there's a lot of that I think is, is schematic in nature. That uh, there was a lot of uh, thoughts, especially early on, in kind of the social neuroscience literature about how. Um, They thought that most self-knowledge was episodic, that we were remembering specific instances about our life. Uh, But a lot of this work is actually showing that it's schematic, Um, that you can take amnesics, that you kind of talk to them about their self-concept before an accident. And then they have this amnesia and you talk to them after. They can't remember any of the episodic information, but they still remember like who they are and their personality traits and all of these things. And I think that's what the frontal lobe is is kind of doing is it's keeping this kind of gist, schematic heuristic information online that we can use for kind of cognitive shortcuts to understand things in a really fast way. Um, but kind of pivoting too. So we have a little bit of time introducing some of these other concepts that have come up uh, in social neuroscience. Uh, because I really want to kind of put this out to the audience, too, because we're kind of touching a lot of this stuff on a surface level. And really, one of the ideas that we had here was introducing a lot of these things that are covered in social neuroscience. And if you want to hear more about any of these, then then leave a comment, and then we can kind of dive into them more. Because uh, the other really big one that came up was, was theory of mind. Um, and so it's this idea that we can Uh, We as humans have this ability to understand that other people have minds of their own, that have intentions and goals of their own. Um, And we often actually, when we're thinking about other people, we actually think about their intentions more than we think about their actions. We think about their mental state. Um, And so you can do this. This is a developmental thing. So this doesn't uh, we're not able to really do this. uh, I think there's some debate in the literature, but until we're around four, uh, three or four. And so they do this, there's kind of this landmark study where you have, uh, you see this girl and she she walks into this room and she puts a marble in a drawer uh, and then she leaves the room and another little girl comes in and takes the marble out of the drawer and puts it somewhere else. Um, and then the, the first girl comes back in and they ask the, the child or whoever it is, they say, where do you think she's going to look for the marble? And if you don't have theory of mind, Then you're going to say, well, she's going to look where it is now, where the girl moved it to, because like you don't realize that she didn't see that, that she didn't have a mind of her own. But if you do have theory of mind, then you're going to say, well, she's going to look where she originally put it because she didn't know that someone moved it or anything like that. Um, And it just highlights that we're able to kind of track that other people have their own intentions. Well, the early work in this, uh, we started to see that there were actually brain regions that were lighting up for this idea of thinking about other people's mental states. Um, and early on, uh, it was the Friths. It's actually a, a husband and wife, like nicest people in the world. Uh, I think they're they're from Europe. <laughs> um, but uh, they they found a lot of like frontal lobe, like dorsal medial prefrontal cortex type stuff. Uh, But it was Rebecca Sachs here in the the U.S. that uh, actually started to dig into this a lot more and isolated a region that is like super reliable for this theory of mind stuff, which is the temporal parietal junction. So it's where the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe meet. It's kind of back here uh, so that the parietal lobe is up here. Temporal lobe is behind your ear. There's this kind of junction where the two of them meet. Uh, It's part of what's called the default mode network, which we'll probably get into in, in later episodes. but. Um, just highlighted, again, that we, there are specific regions of the brain that are really interested in these social type contexts, um, in understanding other people's mental states.
0: Yeah, and, and I, on a related note, there's, there's also these regions that are like, because theory of mind is, is partly, it's related to this idea that we can um, understand that other people are different from ourselves, so we can like differentiate from self and other in that way. And there's not only brain regions devoted to theory of mind, but also to things like processing faces of people. Um, but also, uh, like, there's, there's this process of, of differentiating individuals, not just on the basis of what their, their face, like the physical features of their face, but how we remember them, like our emotional, um, our emotional, uh, what word am I looking for? Basically our, <laughs> our, our feeling about this person. Yeah. And, um, so there are, there are various, uh, lesion studies where people will get, um, damage to like, uh, the, these, these face recognition areas and mm-hmm. they're unable to, they can see the differences between people, but they can't tell like if this person is really someone they know or if it's an imposter. So there's yeah. this whole social process going on. It's not just like, I memorize you, your face, Taylor, and say like, that's Taylor Guthrie. It's like, I have this specific like feeling and, and concept about you that if that doesn't get linked up to your face in my brain, <laughs> I'm not gonna recognize it as you.
1: Right. And, and I think that's where uh, there's some really interesting kind of future work that's going to get into the idea of person decoding. It's something that I'm, I'm really interested in. Some of the studies that, that we're doing in my lab uh, is trying to just by looking at someone's brain activity, trying to figure out who they were thinking about um, wow. and trying to understand. Are these patterns indicative of a specific person? Um, is it about the face? Uh, there's this great debate about face processing that came from Nancy Canwisher's work where she uh, she isolated this area called the fusiform, it's called the fusiform face area, the FFA, um, and she said this is, this it processes faces, uh, but then there's this huge debate with someone, uh, Haxby came along, and he's, who really brought this kind of new way of doing analyses into the forefront of saying, like, if you really zoom in to the FFA and look at the activity patterns within it, it's not just processing faces. It's processing things that are important to us. Um, And so you can take people that are bird watchers or car aficionados. And if birds are really important to you, the FFA cares a lot about birds. If cars are really important to you, the FFA cares a lot about cars. And so it's part of this kind of visual pathway that highlights these things. And when you think about being human and being social, faces are super important. Facial expression tells us a lot about someone's intent, a lot about what they're gonna do next. And so we have this kind of, this machinery that's taking that stuff into account right and so one of the other other areas that i wanted to touch on uh as we're running out of time uh so a lot of what you're seeing is this kind of this marriage between social psychology and and cognitive neuroscience where we're trying to take a lot of this stuff that happened in the social psychology literature for the last like uh 75 hundred years And we're trying to see what kind of brain regions and brain activity informs some of these things that we've learned about. Attitudes, that we've learned about preferences and biases, uh, that we've learned about kind of uh, the way that we understand ourselves and understand other people. But a really big one that came in uh, was So attitudes research is big in social psychology. Uh, The word attitudes is this like umbrella term. It covers a lot of things like preferences and biases, evaluative judgments that we make about other people, the ability to be persuaded or persuade other people. But there was this, uh, Banaji and Phelps developed something called the implicit attitudes test, uh, which was measuring whether or not you had these kind of implicit biases about certain groups of people. Um, And it's this, I encourage you guys to do it. It's this interesting study. It's kind of hard to explain. Uh, It's really fast, but you're making decisions about positive and negative words and about white and black faces. Uh, They also do it with different ages, uh, with different cultural things. It's not just black and white faces, but that was kind of the early thing. Um, And they actually, early on, they weren't sure whether or not this IAT was actually, this test was actually connected to biases. And they actually put a moratorium on using it in a lot of psychological research until they did these studies in the MRI and they noticed that there's this amygdala activity that pops up that's related to the results from the IAT. So if you're a, a white person that does the IAT and it shows that you have these, these biases against Uh, african-americans against black people then it those results actually show that you have greater amygdala activity to black faces while you're sitting in the scanner Um, and the amygdala is something that uh, that kind of there's a lot of in-group out-group stuff that's come up with the amygdala uh andrew's got a fascinating video on the amygdala that kind of gets into some of that stuff um and and they showed that like people from your own in-group the amygdala will kind of At first, they're unfamiliar, so it will activate, but over time, it'll habituate and it'll drop. But for people of your out group, the amygdala stays super active. And so it's this idea that it's like recognizing these people that are outside of your kind of core group of people.
0: Right. Yeah. And I could be incorrect, but I think then there was further research um, about this that was like, well, that that may be true, but that doesn't necessarily translate to like racist actions or um, that you really have harbor like uh, explicit like racist stereotypes Um, Mm -hmm. and that you also have this ability that if if given enough time to look at a picture like that uh, you can seeing this person as an individual rather than just like a face popping up in front of you uh, can lower that amygdala activity I could yeah. be wrong on the specifics of that. but
1: No, I, I think that's that's entirely true. And something that I, I really want to get into in future episodes is kind of the group dynamic principles that are at play here. Uh, because in-group, out-group activity is something that is very ingrained in us, right? It doesn't mean that you're going to engage in these racist attitudes, but a lot of the the biases and the prejudices that we have are because of the environment that we grew up in and because our brain is wired to seek attachment with people in our in-group whether that's the family that we're a part of, whether that's the religion that we were a part of, whether it's kind of the tribe, whatever. Um, but it was getting back to like Dunbar and all of these things. A lot of our brain was, was focused on recognizing people that are like us, because we can predict what they're going to do. The whole like self other distinction, mm-hmm. right? That, that we know that they're like us. And there's got to be some way that we recognize threats and dangers. And uh, when you bring that into the 21st century, it can translate into kind of these nasty things if it's not put in check. But that's why we have a frontal lobe, because we can self-regulate yeah. these things. We can notice if if it if we notice it, if we think about it, then we can stop these prejudices. And that's something I'm going to challenge a lot of the listeners through uh, what we talk about, especially in group dynamics, is really questioning a lot of the social norms that are in place, um, because we have that ability as humans to reflect, to to think about our actions and to think about why we do the things that we do. So um, Absolutely. so I, I think this is it. Uh please. Oh, and please. before
0: we get off, sorry, I just want to shout yeah. out to to Ryan Meerstead. I think I know who that is. Uh, <laughs> but thank you. He said another great discussion yeah. so far. Awesome. So yeah, thank you for watching. I believe that's Ryan Milstead, but I could be wrong. <laughs> Ryan Meerstead, I'll keep it at that.
1: Yeah. And so if, if you if you like what we're doing, if you like the channel, um, some really cool ways to help us, first of all, is to uh, subscribe to our channels, So Cellular Republic and uh, <laughs> Sense of Mind, uh, but also to uh, check out if you're listening to this in podcast form, please give us uh, a review. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. And this will be posted both as a a podcast on the the Social Brain podcast, Mm -hmm. which check that out, subscribe to it on whatever uh, podcast platform you use. And then for at least for these first few episodes, I'll also be posting them on the Sense of Mind podcast. So they'll be available in both places.
1: Uh, and another way creative way to support the channel my wife has an awesome uh, gift shop she makes uh, psychology and neuroscience inspired shirts and mugs and things you can check that out in the link on the the youtube channel so thank you everybody for listening this is this is amazing i I really like having these conversations and i think we're gonna have many more to come so
0: definitely all right good talking talk to you guys later